Good. Good evening, Evie Free. How are you guys? As you can see, we got baptisms coming up. April 3rd, if you are new to faith or if you've been a part of faith for a long time and you just never undergone the practice of water baptism, it is an incredible moment in the life of every believer. I would encourage you after service, find one of our leaders, go to the five minute party table, uh, tell them, hey, I'm brand new to faith and I've never been baptized or tell them I've been a believer for 80 years and I've never been baptized. On April 3rd, uh, we would love to make that happen here at the 5 p.m. service and we have a great team, and it's an awesome time of encouragement for the entire body uh, to see people undergo baptism, Uh, to to be one way on top of the water, to go down and to come out into new life. Uh, And so if you're here, we want to invite you to that. Again, my name is Austin Helm. I'm I'm one of the teaching and venue pastors here. If this is your first time to EV Free, and I know there's a couple of you, or at least the 5 p.m. service, uh, we want to say we hope that you feel right at home. Uh, If you've been coming to EV Free for 500 years, we want to say welcome home. Uh, regardless if you're, this is your first time or your 500th time to EV Free, uh, we're simply a community of people that are passionate about following Jesus as disciples, connecting as family, and going as missionaries. And, and it's precisely this pursuit of Jesus. It's precisely this pursuit of discipleship of being a family, of being a light in this world that leads us to actually orient our lives differently. You see, if you want to be excellent at anything, you have the tendency to reorient your life around something. For instance, if you want great fitness, you tend to find yourself reorienting your life around the gym and the vegetable aisle at the grocery store. If you want to have uh, great grades, you tend to reorient your life around Wikipedia and the library. If, if you want a great family and you want to be close to your parents and your kids, you find yourself reorienting your life around the dinner table or around activities that bring you together as opposed to divide you. The same is true of discipleship. For people that are pursuing discipleship, they tend to reorient their lives around different practices and different seasons of the year. Uh, for thousands of years, one of the things that believers have reoriented their life around is the season of Easter. Easter is the defining moment in human history in which people of the Christian faith believe that Jesus bodily was resurrected from the dead. And when Jesus was bodily resurrected from the dead, everything changed. It was new creation and new life for everybody. And so for thousands of years, every spring, uh, believers have have gathered together to remember this momentous event in history. Uh, And so that's coming up in a couple weeks. And we thought, man, how do we ramp up to such an event? Uh, How do we actually prepare our hearts? How do we prepare our lives? How do we begin to reorient our lives before that day to be ready for that day? And so here at the 5 p.m., we're starting a a series uh, called Jesus, A Vision for the Church, in which we're going to look at the life of Jesus in four different phases. Uh, Today, we're going to look at the birth of Jesus. Next week, we're going to look at the life and the teachings of Jesus. The week after that, we're going to look at the death of Jesus. And then the week after that will be Easter Sunday, and we will celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, a vision for the church. If you're here tonight, discipleship is our vision. Pursuing and following after Jesus, being family, it's our vision. 
living a life of purpose and mission. It's our vision for being a part of this church and being a part of the local church and what God is doing all over the world. And, and so tonight we're going to look at the birth of Jesus. And, and we're going to look at it in, a, in an interesting way. One of the things that we find when we look at the birth of Jesus One of the things we find when we look at the life and teachings of Jesus, when we look at the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, it's it's actually the story of kingship. Uh, N.T. Wright writes a great book, and he kind of classifies all this of of how God became king. When we look at the birth narratives, we find it's a birth narrative of a king in the story of Israel. When we look at the life and teachings of Jesus, we find that Jesus goes around proclaiming the kingdom of God. When we get to the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection being a vindication of Jesus' kingship. And and so beginning tonight, we want to look at this birth narrative. What what does it mean that Jesus was born a king? And is it true? Was this really the hope of Israel from the beginning? And and so we're going to survey a wide variety of passages. And we'll have a lot of them on the screen for you. So if you didn't bring your Bible, no worries. Uh, But before we jump in, we actually want to spend just about... 20 to 30 seconds in prayer because we think it's, it's one thing for the text to be information for us. It's a completely different thing for it to be transformation for us. You see, if you're part of the Christian faith, you believe that the word of God is alive, that it's dynamic, that it, it's the kind of thing that when we read it, it's filled with God's spirit. So we can actually leave here different than we came in. We can leave here with a different orientation than that of which we came in with. So, so can we pray together for just a moment and invite the Holy Spirit into this place? Holy Spirit, Father, we ask you to come and to do what only you can do. That as we open your word and we begin to read from your scriptures, Spirit of God, would you fill this room? Would you come and shape us? Would you come and form us? Would you call us into deeper levels of discipleship? For some of us, we'll answer the call for the first time. For some of us, we'll deepen our call for the 500th time. But wherever we are on the spectrum, Holy Spirit, would you teach us just one new thing about your son tonight? Would you teach us just one new thing that we can walk out of these doors with to be different in our homes, to be different in our schools, to be different in our workplaces? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Uh, has anybody here ever been on uh, Ancestry.com? Any, any folks in here, Ancestry.com? Has anybody in here ever looked into your family tree? Just by, by, by a show of hands. If you've ever looked into your family tree, keep, keep your hand up for just, just a minute. We're going to do a little survey here. How many of you have been able to trace your family tree back two generations? If that's you, keep your hand up. How about three generations? Four generations? Five generations? Six generations. Okay, there, there's, so now for those of you who are at five generations, if you've surveyed your family tree, uh, one of the things that you've probably noticed is there are, some, there are some reputable people in your family tree. There are some stories you're really proud of. There are some lines you're really glad you're a part of it. And if you've gone five generations back, there's probably also some unsavory characters in your family tree. And you think, wow, I wish that wasn't a part of my family tree. I wish I wasn't a part of that story. Uh, but, but for a lot of people, their, their family tree tells something about their story. Uh, when we go to the scriptures and we look at the birth of Jesus as being the birth of a king, uh, the four, out of the four gospels, two of the gospels record 
the birth of Jesus. And Matthew actually begins his narrative with a genealogy of Jesus, the ancestry of Jesus. And in the same way that for most of us, there are some respectable characters and some unsavory characters in our family tree, for folks reading the genealogy of Jesus, they would have had the same sensation. There were people who said, man, I know him. I know Abraham. I know David. There'd be some people that'd say, I don't know that person at all. And there'd be some people that'd say, I wish that person wasn't in there. But one of the things we find in the genealogy of Jesus is that God is working everything together for his plans and for his purposes. In fact, there's about 42 generations of folks represented in Matthew's genealogy. And it's so fascinating that we could do a 42-week series on the ancestry of Jesus. Now, we're not going to do that, uh, but, but tonight we do want to look at a few key moments of the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, as we begin, it begins in Matthew chapter 1. Let me pull this up for us briefly. This is Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 through 17. Uh, the person that Matthew begins with is Abraham. Now, now, when Matthew does this, he's making a theological claim as well. You see, when you read the biblical text, one of the things you find out about Abraham and his family is that Abraham and his family are the beginning of the solution to the problem of evil. When you read Genesis 1 through 3, you find this beautiful world uh, created to be blessed and abundant and generous. Everything in its right place. But then because of sin, the, the creation project begins to fall apart. It begins to spin out of control. But God is never content with that. God always wants to restore and to redeem his creation. So in Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 3, God calls Abram to a life of blessing. He says, Abram, I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your father's household. I want you to leave your land. And I want, to, I want you to go to a land that I am going to show you. And, and when you do, Abram, I'm going to bless you. And I'm not just going to bless you, but I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. This blessing is going to be so abundant that whoever blesses you, I will bless. And this blessing is going to increase to such a degree that Abram, through you, every family on the planet will be blessed through you. Now, for, for the Western world, oftentimes when we look at a word like blessing, we spiritualize it. And we think of blessing as simply a Zen-like state. It, it's, it's a meditative attitude we can get in simply to escape the woes, the troubles, the trials, and the tribulations of the world. But for the Jewish mind, a blessing was, was precisely the opposite of what sin was doing in the world. Blessing was the putting back together of families. Blessing was the giving of meaning to the workplace. Uh, a blessing was God's generosity invading creation again. In, in other words, blessing was God's shalom. It was God's wholeness entering every corner and every fabric of human existence and human life. In other words, Abram and his family, they were going to stand as a prophetic sign in the world of what God's new creation was going to look like. And sure, Abram, uh, he finds himself in all sorts of trouble and makes uh, plenty of bad decisions. But the presence of God is always there to steer Abram back on course. To ensure that God's blessing in his life was going to make him a sign to the world of what God was going to do through him and his people. And so as the story progresses, uh, the story comes true. Uh, the blessing begins to expand into all the world until eventually this blessing creates not just a family, but a nation of Israel. 
Uh, at one point in the book of 2 Samuel, this nation is consolidated under King David. Now, when you go back and you read the Old Testament scriptures, uh, King David was the, uh, he was the pinnacle of kings in the story of Israel. The text actually calls David a king after God's own heart. And when David becomes king, it's like the golden era for Israel. Everything is in its right place. The government is working properly. The economic system is working properly. The ethical systems in place in society was working properly. Everything was good. It was the golden era for Israel. Uh, but, but as Israel is in this golden era, it, it says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1, that they have rest from every enemy on every side. So not, uh, not only is everything good inside the nation, but everything is good in and around the nation. Have you ever been in a situation in your life in which everything was just at rest? Everything was good. Everything was firing on all cylinders. If you like me, you've experienced that season and you've also seen it fall apart pretty quickly. Because it seems that those seasons, they just don't last very long. In fact, that's exactly what happens to Israel. A part of their call in this golden era as the nation of Israel was to continue to extend the blessing of God to every corner of the world. And part of that was remaining faithful to Yahweh and to Yahweh alone. It was Yahweh alone that deserved their attention that deserved their allegiance, that deserved their faithfulness. But, but as um, Israel transitions past King David into future kings, their, their faithfulness begins to wane. Their worship begins to fall apart. And, and as a result, uh, we find them in a state of exile. Uh, this, this generation from Abram to David, this is 14 generations. Uh, the next set is 14 generations as well. And it says in Psalm 137, beginning in verse 1, that Israel is in a destitute space in exile. Uh, in fact, they're in exile to Babylon. Exile simply means that Babylon came in and they took all of their leaders took all of their politicians, uh, took all of their people of great standing, and they moved them out of the land and left the least of the least in the land. In other words, absolute chaos broke out in Israel because they removed the, the, the structures of order that were in place. And in Psalm, excuse me, <coughs> Psalm chapter 137, verse 1, uh, we find the psalmist saying, man, how can we sing the songs of Yahweh? How can we sing the songs of Zion? How can we sing the beautiful songs of Israel while we are in a foreign land, in the land of Babylon? But even as they're sitting in exile, even as they're sitting far away from the land, they had this promise. We notice here on the slide, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. It was this promise that a king was going to come that was not only like David, but was going to be better than David. Uh, the scriptures that they talk about as coming from the root of Jesse. Uh, Jesse was, was David's dad. And when this king came, not only would they be a blessing to all the nations, but all the nations would rally around this king. So uh, as Matthew is making this genealogy, it isn't just a story of the ancestry of Jesus. It's a story of the people of Israel and how God was going to make everything right again. And so then Matthew launches into the last set of 14 generations. And this is, this is Babylon. It's Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. The prophet is speaking to Israel. Israel's in exile. And the prophet says, Israel, your exile is not going to last long, but God is going to raise up a leader. 
He's going to raise up a leader named Cyrus from Persia and will come and release Israel from their exile so that you can go back to the land. And in fact, it happens. King Cyrus comes and liberates Israel from Babylon and actually sends them back to the land. He says, I want you to go back to the land and rebuild your city. Rebuild the temple. Rebuild the marketplace. Rebuild your places of worship. May, may you guys prosper and succeed and be in abundance again. And so Israel is full of hope. But even as they return to the land, not all is as it should be. Once they get back to the land, it, it isn't long before they're under Roman occupation. And they have a second temple, but it's not as great as the first temple. They have an economy, but it's not as great as the previous economy. They have places of worship, but it's not as great as their previous places of worship. And so they still feel as if they are in this this quasi-place of exile. And as a result, the people of Israel begin to talk about this prophecy of one from the root of David that will come. This prophecy of a king that will come that is not only like David, but better than David. And when they begin to talk about this king, when this king comes, this king is going to restore Israel back to its former glory. This king is going to restore Israel back to the golden era. They they, they begin to call this king their Messiah, the anointed one. In a sense, this became an eschatological figure, one that would come at the end when Yahweh would finally become king through his representative once again. And so in Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, as Israel is back in the land, but in quasi-exile, Matthew writes, and this is how the birth of the Messiah came to pass. This is how the birth of the one that will restore the kingdom back to Israel came to pass. But it's not a story like anything you would expect. Oftentimes when we think about the birth of great leaders or influential people, we think about them being, being born into ideal circumstances. Families that are healthy, happy, and whole. But it, actually we find Jesus born into a space of conflict. You see, in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, uh, Mary is engaged to a man named Joseph. They're pledged to be married. Uh, They've got the ring on their fingers. Uh, It's posted on Facebook. The entire village knows about it. Like this thing is set in stone. And then one night, late at night, Joseph gets this knock at his door. And he opens the door and there's Mary. And, And Mary says, Joseph, just please don't freak out. I have to tell you something. But it's not what you think it's gonna be. And you can, and Joseph's like, what could, what could it possibly be? And Mary tells Joseph probably the one phrase he did not want to hear. Mary looks at Joseph late at night and says, Joseph, I'm pregnant. Talk about a bombshell. I mean, this is the kind of thing that can only happen after marriage. And Joseph knows that he's not the one that's done this. And the text says that Joseph is a righteous man. He's a man of the law. And so the text says that he's going to divorce Mary. He's going to call off the engagement, but he's going to do it quietly. And and then Mary tries to stop him and says, no, 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 Joseph, this is from God. The Holy Spirit has done this. And Joseph says, let me get the number to the psychiatric ward because we know that didn't happen. And so Mary goes home and Joseph closes his door. And as Joseph is sleeping, he gets a visitation from an angel. 
And the first thing the angel says is, Joseph, don't be afraid. What Mary says is true. God is doing a new thing. He's doing something that is unheard of in human history. He's doing a new creation in the womb of Mary. So Joseph, take Mary to be your wife. And then he says this to him. He, he, he tells them how to name the child. This is Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. Simply says, and she will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. Because Jesus will save his people from their sins. And, and notice up here we have Jesus and Joshua. If you have an NIV or maybe a few other translations, you probably have a footnote in your Bible. And at the bottom it says that Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua. And Joshua simply means God saves. And when we go back to the Old Testament, one of the things that we find is that as Israel is beginning to take possession of the land, the land that will be their future kingdom, it's Joshua that leads the people in that adventure. And here you have Jesus with this name Joshua that God saves and he will save them from their sin. And when we remember, we remember the genealogy, we know the reason that Israel goes into exile into Babylon is because of their sin. But when their sin is dealt with, Israel will, they'll come out of exile and they'll experience the abundance of the kingdom again. They'll experience the abundance of the presence of God and of his generosity. Uh, so in a sense, the angel is saying that Jesus is going to be the one that finally gets Israel out of complete exile and back into the land and restores the kingdom. But not only is Jesus going to save them, he says this a few verses later in verse 23. He says, and the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. God with us. This, this isn't going to be a redemption rescue project in which Jesus does it from afar. But Jesus is going to be with his people. In fact, John chapter 1 simply says that the word became flesh and it actually lived among them. Went to school with them. Was in the marketplace with them. Was in the synagogue with them. That, that this one that would come was bumping shoulders with the people of the towns. So call him Emmanuel, because not only is he going to save his people, but he's going to be with his people. And then Matthew begins to tell this story about the kingship of Jesus. As, as the story unfolds, we find that a caravan of wise men show up to King Herod. Now, King Herod's an interesting figure in the first century. King Herod has been put in place by Caesar to, to keep the area of Israel calm. And Herod's a Gentile. He's not Jewish. And the only kind of person that could be king in Israel was someone that was Jewish. But even though Herod was a Gentile, people called him the king of the Jews. Because it's the area that he ruled and reigned in. And just a few verses later in Matthew chapter 2, this caravan of wise men show up. And they approach Herod. <coughs> Herod, who had been called the king of the Jews. And they look right at him. And the statement they make to him would have been a complete slap in the face. They look at Herod and they say, where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? In other words, Herod, you're a fraud. You're an imposter. 
you aren't the true king of the Jews. And the wise men say this. It says, we saw his star when it rose and we haven't come just to see him. We have come to worship this child that has been born a king. The text continues and says that this deeply troubled Herod. So Herod, he gathers his cronies together and they they come up with a plan to send the wise men off to find out where the child is and then to go and to kill the child. So uh, they come back and Herod says, wise men, go. Go and find the child. Come back and tell me where he is so that I may go and worship the child as well. And as the story unfolds, the wise men come across this baby that has been born a king. And when they stumble upon the house where Jesus is, it says they open up their treasures and they present gifts of gold and of frankincense and of myrrh. And when you read uh, parallel kinds of passages in the Old Testament about the kinds of gifts that wise men and dignitaries from other countries would bring, the gifts are massive. They're huge. And so here we have in the, in the gospel of Matthew a record, not only of the birth of Jesus, but the birth of Jesus as a king. And in this story, it simply means that King Herod's time has run out. And that the kingship of Jesus is going to change everything. Uh, Luke says a similar thing in his account, but slightly different. In, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, it, it tells a story about shepherds out in the field. Now, shepherds were the lowliest of the low. They were the poorest of the poor. They were ceremonially unclean. If anything, if any kind of news was going to reach the shepherds, it was going to reach the shepherds last. And in Luke's account, this is before the wise men have come. Uh, Mary has just given birth in a cave and Joseph and the animals are there. And when this has happened, it says that not just one angel, but a multitude of angels fills up the heavens to declare great news to these shepherds. And then one angel steps forward and says this in the gospel of Luke. This is Luke chapter two, beginning in verse 11. It says, today, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. Uh, He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. Now, now these three phases, uh, these three phrases, uh, they aren't accidental. Uh, when this angel steps forward and uses the word Messiah, it's, it's that word for anointed one. It's about the king that will come and finally restore Israel. But then he also uses these phrases, Savior and Lord. You see, in the first century, in the Roman Empire. Oh, let me go back to that. In the first century in the Roman Empire, there's only one person that held the title Savior. And there's only one person that held the title Lord, and it was Caesar himself. In fact, when Caesar would come into a town, the people of the town would rally around his caravan, and they would say, Caesar, Caesar, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Savior of the world. But when this angel shows up, uh, this angel looks direct at these shepherds, these poor shepherds who are at the very bottom of the ladder and simply says, Caesar is an imposter as well. Not only is Herod an imposter, but Caesar is an imposter as well. And his time is up. You see, for Caesar, he he would require the worship of the people. He would require people to pay homage to him. But in this new reality, 
in this new reality of Jesus being king, the worship of Caesar is going to come to an end. And it's going to be the worship of Jesus and Jesus only. And, and so we're, we're going to close with this idea right here, right now. But this is simply what it means. It means that, that God is doing something new through the kingship of Israel. Through Jesus being king. Uh, Paul says it like this. He says that because Jesus is king, local churches are now colonies of heaven. In other words, it was this kind of idea. It was the idea that uh, when a king would take over a foreign territory, he would set up a colony. He would set up a colony in the area. And the reason for this colony is because they needed to train the people of the area. They had to, treat, they had to, they had to train them how to worship now because there was going to be a new way to worship. They had to train them on the new currency that they would use. Uh, they, they had to train them on, on the new way they would interact, the new languages they would use. And so in the Roman Empire especially, as Caesar would take over, he would set up these colonies of Rome in which they would teach them the worship of the emperor. They would teach them how to use the emperor's currency. They would teach them how to, how to speak the emperor's language. But Paul says, because Caesar's time is done, Because Jesus is now king, the local churches are now not colonies of Rome, but colonies of heaven. Instead of orienting their life around the way of Rome, they begin to orient their life around the way of the kingdom. Instead of orienting their life around the worship of Caesar, they would now begin to worship Jesus. Instead of orienting around the new currency of Caesar, they would begin to handle their money differently. Instead of engaging in the family the way the Romans said it was best, they were now going to engage with their families the way that Jesus said was best. You see, the reality of Jesus being king was going to change everything. And so as Paul looked across the landscape of Asia and of Europe and of the Middle East, and he saw these local churches, and he believed that Jesus was now the king of the world, that finally God had become king for Paul. It meant that everything was going to change. It meant a completely different life orientation. And so when we gather in a place like this on Sunday evenings, the reason we gather to worship, the reason we gather to pray, The reason we gather to study is because we constantly come back to reorient our lives around Jesus because when we leave this place, there are plenty of organizations, there are plenty of institutions, there are plenty of companies that would love for us to orient our lives around the things that they want us to orient our lives around. Maybe it's a political movement. Maybe it's an online movement. Maybe it's a social movement. Maybe it's a consumerism mentality, but the life of the local church says there's only one person and there's only one movement worth orienting our life around and it's Jesus and his church. And so when we come together to worship, we come to remember that Jesus, you're, you're the center. You're the king and now we are a colony of heaven. We are a colony that's learning to love differently to speak differently, to give differently, to steward differently, to pray and to worship differently. This is what it means that Jesus is king. It's not just a political, some kind of political reality. It's a deep soul reality that affects the very way we engage with our workplace. It affects the way we engage in our schools. 
It affects the way we engage in our families. It's one of the reasons we're so passionate. It's one of the reasons, (laughs) excuse me, we're so committed to the idea of community groups. Because our our, our 5 p.m. community groups become this place where we reorient our lives around the reality that church isn't just a Sunday thing, it's an everyday thing. And so we gather together in homes to read, to spend time together, to pray. You see, the reality that Jesus is king changes everything. And for the gospel writers... For the two of the four that actually recorded the birth narrative, for both of them, it wasn't just the birth of a baby or the birth of a religious leader or the birth of some kind of social figure. It was the birth of a king. It meant that Herod's time was up. It meant that Caesar's time was up. And it was time for all of the nations of the earth to reorient their lives. And so that's the call every Sunday. Every Sunday, the call to discipleship is a call simply to reorient our lives around something that is bigger than us, around something that is better than us, about something that is far worthier than we are. It's to reorient our lives around Jesus. It's the reason for all the spiritual practices we have. I remember being a kid, and I'd ask my parents, Man, why, do we, why do we always pray before we eat? They, they didn't always have a great answer for it. You know, I'd go to I'd go to school, and at that time we had a, we had prayer, uh, or at least a moment of silence in school. I'd say, why do we have this moment of silence in prayer in school? And people didn't have a great answer for it. But but the reason is because of this. It, it was this idea that consistently throughout the day in these small areas of our life, we were constantly reorienting our lives around Jesus. Every time we'd eat, we'd reorient our life around Jesus. At least in school at that time. Anytime there was a moment of silence, we were reorienting our life around Jesus. Every time we meet in a community group, every time we come to a Sunday night service, we are reorienting our life around the new reality that Jesus is the king of the earth. He's the king of the world and it means that everything is being made new again. That new creation, it's, it's, it's working its way through our lives and through our spheres of influence. And church, this is amazing news. This is a wonderful reality as we gather together to worship and to remember that Jesus is king and that because of that, our entire lives can be different. And so right now, we just want to hop into worship for a few moments simply as a way of reorienting our life around Jesus. Can we pray together? Father, we, we pause for a moment. This, this Easter season, as we, um, as we get ready to celebrate your resurrection, as we prepare ourselves to celebrate your bodily resurrection from death and from the grave, we want to remember that it began with your birth. And that you didn't simply become a king in your resurrection, but you were a king at your birth. And that Herod's time is up. Caesar's time is up. And as a result, we want to reorient our life around you. Father, we want to be a colony of heaven, uh, learning what it is to worship. Learning how to handle our finances. Learning how to engage in the marketplace. Learning how to engage with our families. Father, as we come here and begin to orient our life around you, Holy Spirit, would you teach us? Would would you call us to deeper layers and deeper commitments of discipleship? 
Jesus, in these next few moments, would you come and do what only you can do, which is to shape us and to form us and to send us out differently than we came in. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Can we stand together as we worship?